listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Business of Baking podcast, and today is a particularly important day for me because I'm going to be talking to somebody who not only is a recent student of mine into build your profitable cake business, but also somebody who's on a mission that I find personally really important. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that before I actually introduce her. I actually have been talking a lot, as you guys would know, about money and women and this whole concept that a lot of us don't want to charge properly for the work that we do because we feel that there's a negative emotional attachment to money. So we say, I feel really bad for charging or, you know, I'm not about the money or I don't want people to think I'm greedy. And one of the things I've been talking about and writing about recently is we need to start thinking about money as a force for good, not a force for evil. So if the money I make in my cake business goes to feed my kids, well, that's a positive thing. And if the money I use in my cake business goes to feed other people's kids or educate people or enable me to stay at home or whatever it is, you know, look after an an elderly parent, whatever it is, then that money is nothing to be ashamed about and nothing to feel bad about. In fact, if you choose to spend your money on like an entire closet full of Manolo Blahnik shoes, I'm cool with that too. I just think we need to remove this stigma of being about the money or that money is somehow a bad thing. I recently wrote an article for the blog about this called What Goes Around Comes Around. And I talked about how the money we earn in our business, regardless of what we use it on, right? Whether we use it on shoes or we use it on cosmetics or we use it on education for our kids or we use it on our parents or whatever we use it for, it has a flow on effect. And the concept I was talking about was it's like, you know, the proverbial pebble in the pond, right? You throw it in the pond and all the ripples reach out. And so let's say I'm using this money to educate my kids. Well, that money is also keeping teachers employed and school janitors employed and uniform businesses employed and school book companies employed and laptop companies employed. And it has a far, far, far reaching effect. And today's guest is somebody who has an immediate, she doesn't have to, not, you know, the very first ripple does something. And so I'm particularly happy to talk to her. So today I'm talking to Patricia Sheets and she is located in New South Wales, Australia. And there are lots of interesting things about her, including that she was a reality TV star, but that's probably the least interesting thing. The most interesting thing is that she's running a company called The Sweetest Gift. And The Sweetest Gift is a charity, a registered charity that employs and trains transplant recipients and people with chronic illnesses. And the reason it does that is because normally people who have those issues struggle to stay stably employed because of their health conditions. It can be really hard to get a job when you have a chronic illness or you are a transplant recipient or you are awaiting a transplant because often you know, you might not be able to work every day or perhaps you've got physical limitations or whatever. 
there's ongoing obstacles to being somebody with those conditions wanting to find a job. So the whole point of the sweetest gift is to create a business that can sustain an employee base based on people who are dealing with those chronic illnesses and who are our transplant recipients. Now there's two reasons why this actually three reasons why this is something that is particularly important to me personally. The first is that my childhood best friend for whom my eldest daughter is actually named suffers with lupus and fibromyalgia and a whole bunch of chronic medical illnesses, chronic illnesses. And she really wants to work. But by the time she was in her early 30s, she had to quit work altogether because she simply could not find an employer that could make reasonable accommodations to make it possible for her. And it physically became impossible. So she dropped out of the workplace at a relatively young age. And we often talk about this, how hard it is for her to find a job, keep a job, you know, physically deal with a job, recover from, from working. She wants to work. She's a highly intelligent, highly capable woman who simply can't find an environment which can deal with her chronic illnesses. And so that, that's a topic I, I know a lot about. And then on the flip side of that, one of my closest friends here in Melbourne is a kidney transplant recipient, and he has managed to stay gainfully employed the entire time, from being diagnosed to being on dialysis to then getting his kidney to then obviously life after the kidney, and he continues to work and basically has had no problems because he happened to find employers that were flexible and willing to help him out with that, and he's had a pretty fruitful, happy life. And then the third part of why this is important to me, something I don't talk about very often is that I do some work here in Australia with an organization that's all about diversity and inclusion. It's called the Equal Employment Opportunity Network Victoria. And what we do is we educate people in the HR profession or people in diversity and inclusion about keeping employed and how to best employ people with all kinds of diverse issues. So maybe that be that women, be that people with mental health issues, be that people with physical health issues, things like the aging workforce. We deal with all those kind of things. So all of these things are things that mean a lot to me and are a big part of my life. The people I love struggle with them or triumph with them. And it's also a professional interest of mine. So without further ado, I'm so excited to introduce you to Patricia Sheets of The Sweetest Gift. And I'm going to let her tell us her story because I think it's important that you hear it from the person who lived it. So welcome, Patricia, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle. It is. I Seriously, when you spoke up and said, oh, this is why I'm doing my business, I was like, Yay! Like fully somebody who's promoting this concept that the money is not always about buying handbags, and even if it is, that's okay. And also somebody who's involved in something that I care a lot about. So I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, thank you. And I do have an obscene amount of shoes. So it's, you know, <laughs> they're not Manolos, but you know, they're obscene. Right. Lots. There's so- a room, a whole room. <laughs> You know, my feet are size 12, so this is not a thing for me, sadly. I think I own like five pairs. I'm an 11, so I'm in your boat. So as soon as a pair of shoes fits, I'm like, that's it. I'm having it in every color it comes in. I'm in, I'm in. (laughs) So Patricia, tell me, I want to hear your story and I want to hear how this led to the sweetest gift. Sure. So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at a really, really young age, as a baby, in fact. I was the eldest daughter, so firstborn child to my parents who... In the early 1980s, really no one knew what diabetes was. Well, they did, but it was a disease that was sort of just not talked about. It was, There wasn't much research into it, and there wasn't a great deal of knowledge around it. So my parents very much 
I guess, pioneered <laughs> as they went teaching the doctors along the way about all different sorts of things as, you know, bringing up a small child can, can do. So having a first child be chronically ill was incredibly difficult. And add to that the fact that my diabetes was always sort of out of control despite everybody's best efforts. I just had a disease that was just not very nice really and decided it wanted to take its own path no matter what anyone tried to do to stop it. So I went through school and high school and graduated in year 12, did my high school certificate and finished and did all that sort of business quite normally and left and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life but went into the workforce and and at age 21 I sort of clearly remember and I don't think that the, the thought will ever leave me. I looked up at the train timetable boards and, and couldn't see them. I just, it was all blurry and just, I simply thought that basically my eyesight was just, I was just tired. You know, I burned the candle at both ends like most 21 year olds do. I was out partying on the weekends, I had a pretty active social life. I was working quite long hours that sort of thing. So I rubbed my eyes, didn't think anything of it. But I guess benefit of hindsight now, it was the start of something much, much bigger for me. So I think about two years after that, I wound up in hospital with uh, the flesh-eating bacteria. So I had <laughs> I had a flesh-eating bacteria in my thigh. So it removed a third of, well, actually, sorry, a fifth of my leg, my upper thigh and my left side, left side and part of my ring finger. I was lucky to survive that, to be honest, and lucky to keep both my finger and my leg. And lucky to walk again, I was told I never would. I spent three months in hospital proving the doctors wrong. And three months later, I walked out of the hospital with a walking cane, but I walked out. So that's a bit of a catalyst for my life, I guess, you know, telling everybody, you know, just watch me, I can do this. At that time as well, I started to um, get my eyesight diagnosed a little bit more technically. So I was informed at that time that I was going blind due to the, the complications of my diabetes. And... That was hard to take. I'm not going to lie. I had lots and lots of treatments and, and injections into my eyes and it's all very gory and graphic and a little bit horrendous. But this was all to, in, in order to preserve the eyesight, the little eyesight that I did have. And, you know, that sort of all resolved itself after a little while, so to speak. It stabilised at least. A few years after that, I got married. And a month after I got married, actually on my wedding day, I was in hospital because I just was. This sort of started to become a bit of a, a life event for me, quite regular um, trips to the hospital, quite regular admissions. I had a condition that was also a diabetic complication where my stomach shut down. And so you can imagine when your stomach shuts down, there's nowhere for the food that you eat to go. So I ended up vomiting and not being able to stop. My body just didn't, my nerves didn't work to tell my body that, hey, your stomach's empty, stop. So it would get out of control and quickly that turned into kidney failure. So um, about a month after I got married, I got diagnosed with kidney failure and told at some point later on in the time, you'll need dialysis and, and so on and so forth. So that was 2009 that I got married and diagnosed with that. At the time I was diagnosed, I was told that, you know, it would be a couple of years before I would need dialysis. And I think I ended up on dialysis about six months after that, that being told that. So everything that I was always told happened much, much more rapidly than anyone could have predicted. Also, around the time of starting dialysis, I was asked if I would consider being put forward for a transplant, an organ transplant, because my diabetes was essentially, it was killing me. I was getting to the stage where my blood sugars would drop so low that I would be completely unaware of it happening. And so it would happen in public places. I was on a train one day and headed towards the city on the phone to my husband and he could pick up a low blood sugar in my voice, he became so attuned to it, just like my mum did, 
you know, through raising me, my husband became so attuned to it so fast. He could pick little idiosyncrasies in my voice and said, you know, honey, you need to get off the train. And I was just, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Cause I'm quite <laughs> stubborn when I want to be. And especially when I've, I'm going through something like that. And I ended up getting rescued off the train at central station, which is in the Sydney CBD and taken off the train. And I was unconscious completely unconscious and completely unaware of my situation. So that sort of thing was starting to become my norm, which was invariably going to end up with me not waking up. You know, I was, yeah. So I couldn't say yes fast enough to a transplant. They explained what, what happens and and all that sort of thing. And I was like, yes, sign me up. Let's, let's get this done. You know, this is going to just to preserve me and and keep me here for my husband and my mum and dad and my brother and, and my friends. And so got worked up for my transplant and all the while I was on dialysis and I dialyzed at my local hospital, which is great. I was on dialysis four days a week and I was 27 at the time. So I was living the life of, I want to say 80 year old, but I know plenty of active 80 year olds. It was just like this life where no one should really ever live. You know, it's, you'd sit in the, the, the chair, you'd get hooked up to the machine and dialysis is essentially this enormous machine doing the job of your kidneys, which is just insane. If you ever get the chance to see what a dialysis machine looks like, it's the size of most modern TVs and you get hooked up to it, you get injected and basically this machine cleans all your blood, it draws all your blood out, cleans it and spits it all back in nice and clean because your kidneys normally do that, these two little things that are about the size of each of your fists. So that was my life. I was there four days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, yeah, all that sort of thing. And September of, of 2010, I got placed on the transplant, official transplant waiting list. And like, I think waiting for things is hard. I think waiting for a coffee on a Monday morning is hard. <laughs> I think waiting for the train is insane. I think waiting in traffic, which I've just done, is crazy, but nothing like waiting for a call that's going to save your life. I would jump every time that my number would flash with a private number and I always had this picture in my mind that it would happen in the middle of the night and we'd have to dash across the city to, to Westmead Hospital where I was transplanted. But invariably it was it was nothing like that at all. I, um, I got a call one night in, in May of 2011 and I was on dialysis because that was my life. We're ready for you and it was the most non-event event of my life. It was nothing like the lights and sirens that I'd ever envisaged, but we, we did. We made the trip over and spent a very restless night together, my husband and I, sharing one hospital bed because they didn't have a spare bed for him. So we sort of <laughs> weirdly shared a bed together, but got absolutely no sleep because we didn't know what to expect the next day. And the next day happened. And I think I woke up about one in the morning after my transplant and felt like if I wasn't tethered to the bed by three million tubes, I would have run from one side of the city back to my home because I felt a million dollars. And it was then that I realized how unwell I'd been, even though I kind of hadn't felt that way, so to speak. It's funny. You're telling me you woke up from a double transplant and felt a million dollars. Like, (laughs) as I said, if I wasn't, I had tubes out of everywhere because you just do. You, you've got pain medication on board and, and all sorts of things and IV drips and stuff like that. And if I didn't have everything in me, I could have run across, maybe not run, but you know, walked quite briskly. Because, you, because your new normal had become oh, my new normal what, any, become, what anybody else would describe as feeling crappy, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. My life used to be going from the bed to the couch 
lying on the couch most of the day watching dodgy TV, coming back to bed or going to dialysis after watching dodgy TV for a few hours. Right. And that was my life. I didn't really do anything beyond that. It was going to pick up the mail from my mailbox was impossible. It was just not too hard, way too hard basket. And it became isolating, incredibly isolating because it's when you're unwell and when you're chronically unwell, it's sort of, it's hard not to feel unwell. It's hard not to say you're not well. Yeah, it's a little bit, it, your friends kind of, and bless their cotton socks. <laughs> yeah, they sort of get a little sick of it. And I can totally understand that. They don't, but they do. But after my transplant, you know, I was up, I think I was released from hospital about a week after my transplant with no problems and kind of, wow, what a new life. You know, not having to go to the hospital every five minutes was just crazy. Like I'd, <laughs> I'd made really close friends with my nurses and things like that. To suddenly not see them was like losing a limb, so to speak. And at that point as well, I mean, I guess while I was waiting or lying in the hospital bed recovering from my transplant, I kind of realised that whilst I had this new lease on life, someone had just lost someone very dear to them and they that person had made the decision to, to donate their organs and that was huge for me. I, it, was, it was a very big thing for me to kind of comprehend. And so I sort of vowed that I'd do everything I could to make that decision worthwhile. So I went from being diabetic to suddenly having this urgent desire to learn to make and bake and things like that. So the first thing I did... I love the irony in that. Like you have to watch your blood sugar and now you're like, bring me all the sugar things. Yeah, but it wasn't eating them. I don't really... I still don't have a sweet tooth. It's seven years later and I still don't... I still drink have equal in my coffee. I don't I don't eat sugar. Well, I do, but not as much as, yeah. you know, what you'd think. But I, I picked up a book on macarons and started making them just went, oh, how hard can this be? And that yeah. was Famous last words, Patricia. You picked the most, e- the most irritating treat of all to make. Good job on that one. I, I, I applaud your effort to just jump right into the irritating one. Good job. <laughs> well, I nailed it. First go, they were immaculate. And I then realized that they're actually, you know, I researched it and found out they're actually really hard to make and they are a, a pain in the you-know-where. Yeah. And that was it. So I decided that I was going to do something with that and you know, a couple of years later, I was a contestant on Zumbo's Just Desserts on Channel 7 and now on Netflix, where I kind of got to show my passion for desserts to the to the country and now invariably the world. And I also got to tell my story. So the biggest thing for me being on the show was I knew it was a reality TV show and it was going to be a little bit invasive on my life. But if I could make one person sign up to that organ donor register and I could get through to some people about what it meant to be a transplant recipient, then it was everything was worthwhile for me. So I took my experiences there and trained as a pastry chef. So as of today, which is the uh, 28th of March, last night I graduated. So Hey, congratulations. <laughs> I finished my studies last year, but I actually officially graduated last night. So um, that was really exciting. And the sweetest gift started out of pure necessity, funnily enough. I had my own little business that worked at markets and, you know, I make cakes on the side and macarons and macarons and macarons, of course. But last year, about this time last year, as a matter of fact, I broke my hand quite badly and um, being right-handed or predominantly right-handed, it was hard being a pastry chef or training pastry chef and trying to use a piping bag at mm. the very least, let alone stir anything or anything like that. And the thought suddenly occurred to me, what 
would I do if I was working in the real world? Because I'd, I'd worked from job to job and my health would always get in the way. You know, I'd get sick with a cold or something like that and being transplanted, you're immunosuppressed. So you get sick quite easily and it's sometimes prolonged, but it's always, it's not planned. It's not predictable. Nothing. You, you never know. You can wake up one morning and just be sick being perfectly well the night before. So it's, it's hard to stay stably employed. So breaking my hand, what else, what else can I do with my time and how am I going to get myself around this? And suddenly that thought that, hey, I'm not the only one in this situation. I actually know a bunch of people that are in this situation. What can I do about this? Let's open a, let's try, let's fundraise to open a dessert restaurant and employ these people and, and give them that flexibility and understanding that they need because I get it. I'm in that, I'm in that dessert bowl too. So that the sweetest gift was born. That was, that was <laughs> as I said, pure necessity, but a need that it wasn't just my own. It's, it's so many other people's and, and everyone I talk to about it that's, that's in the space loves it. So such a, a proud achievement and, you know, it still is. We haven't got the dessert restaurant open yet, but we've got so many people on board and such awesome support. So, yeah. I'm listening to this and I'm like, Okay, broken hand. Okay, whatever. I'm like, my God, woman, the fact that you still stand up at all. Is... So what's your health, if, if it's all right to ask, what's your health situation now? Like is your eyesight is, is sorted? Like where are you now? So technically I'm still legally blind in my left eye. So I'm completely, completely visually impaired in my left. Mm-hmm. I can't see anything out of it. It's all a big blur that doesn't give any focus to anything. So depth perception is hard, which is going downstairs and walking into poles, which is quite embarrassing until you know who I am. But my right eye is okay. I have I had cataract surgery last year because the treatment I'd had on my eyes had made a cataract grow quite quickly, more, faster than the norm. So I had that removed and my eyesight is, is stable. You can yep. I wear glasses for reading and driving and things like that. And yes, I drive. <laughs> But it's stable. And funny you should talk about being on my feet at all because I I have two plaster casts on my feet. So, yeah. <laughs> and why is that? <laughs> I've broken one of my feet and it's such a bad break. I've had it for four and a half years. So it's been one of those ones that's healed, not healed very well, broken again when I've been out of casts but it used to play off each each side. So I'd break one side and then the other side would break because plaster casts or even the moon boots that you see a lot of people walk around in, there's a height difference. And no matter what mm. you do, there's always a height difference, even if it's a couple of millimetres. And so my right foot invariably just stress fractured and has now spat the dummy entirely. And so, yeah, I wear pretty much permanent plaster casts at the moment until um, I'm scheduled to have surgery later in the year, which will um, incapacitate me for a little while. But yeah, yeah it, it's hopefully the end of, of that sort of saga. Do you know what astounds me about this? Actually, when I started this podcast and I thought about having you on, for me, it was all about the like proof that you can run a business whose, oh, whose totally. aim and mission is about is about a good cause. And, and that's still true. But now this story for me, now that I've heard more of it, I'm like, actually, you're a damn fine example of there are no such thing as roadblocks, just detours. It's you just find your way around it. Exactly. And, you know, everything like who would have thought that someone with a vision impairment can pipe macarons, but I do it. I sell them to cafes and things like that. So it's not just a home sort of thing. I do do it sort of fairly well, I like to think. It's just you cope, you just adapt. And for me, I think being chronically all my entire life has made me just 
nothing surprises me anymore. I don't I like to say that, but then something will. You get thrown curveballs all the time and you just learn to roll with the punches. Not to say that it's easy and not to say that I don't have really bad days, but you just learn to roll with it and move on and do the best that you can with what you've got. So running a business for me was just, it works for me in my situation because, you know, I can have those down health days or weeks or whatever if I need to. And I still just run my business most of the time. Like I have an awesome hubby who is my sous chef. Because <laughs> he's learnt from me over the years, and you know he's decorated his fair share of cakes when I've been too unwell to. So we make a pretty good team. You know, running the business was a natural thing for me, and it made perfect sense, and it's worked so well. And anyone, there's loads of people that tell me, "Well, you're crazy running your own business, having your health situation." But I think anyone can do anything if they put their mind to it. It's- well, it offers you the job you can't get elsewhere is the job you created for yourself. Exactly, exactly. And right? I hope with the sweetest gift that I can provide that without the stress of owning your own business. <laughs> so so tell me about the business you own at the moment. So the business you own at the moment is a home-based, is it, would you call it a macaron business? Or like, yeah, just home-based? It's, it's tell me about, tell me about how the business is now. Like what, yeah, so- how is it going now? So the, we're, we're home-based. We lease a commercial kitchen, which is fantastic. And yeah, we make sweet treats for, for people when they need it. So it's custom orders at the moment and things like that. We've got a reasonable reputation in the community, which is nice. There's always room to grow. So that's, I guess, why I've signed up to your, your course, Michelle. I've been doing a lot along the way. The pressure's um, on now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Patricia, how does this work in terms of like, if somebody says, I want a cake for six months from now, do you just say no? Like, how does it work for you in terms of, because your health is unpredictable, how do you work it in terms of like, because obviously people order stuff for, you know, weddings or birthdays or whatever in advance. So how do you manage that part of it? So we always say yes, obviously provided we're not priorly booked, which does happen from time to time. We always say yes. I've got a little crew now, got a little gang of semi-employees, I guess, slash volunteers, which is amazing. So people that I've trained with at TAFE, um, other transplant recipients that I've found along my journey. Mm-hmm. Um, who are happy to take on orders when I physically can't do them or for whatever reason I can't do them. And that's been a great little adaptation of The Sweetest Gift and it's a smaller form now. So scaling that to a dessert restaurant, obviously we'll have people who are well and, and so to speak normal in inverted commas who will work within the business as well as all of our transplant recipients and other chronically ill people to sort of fill those gaps yep. um, because we're not well all the time and that's just part of who we are, but that's okay. You know what? I'm actually like, I'm looking at my list of questions going, these all seem so inane. Now. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just astounded by you actually. I, cause when I, you know, when we first got in contact, you did tell me a little bit about it and, and you know, whatever, but <laughs> I'm not often speechless, Patricia. So good work on that one. I'm just, okay. So now it's, I need to like refocus. I'm literally like my, my brain is just going like, click, 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 click. How does this woman get up every day, let alone try to organize a charity? So, well, you know what? I think part of it too is, look, we each have our own reality. And for some people who are 
you know, physically well and mentally well and whatever, getting out of bed is just a challenge for them in general, right? Mm -hmm. That's just life. We all have different challenges. And I just think about you with like, you know, one good eye and two bung legs. Yeah. Oh, totally. totally. A fifth of your thigh gone or whatever it is. And I'm like, holy crap, you sound very cheerful and happy, which is just amazing to me. But I think it's all about, I think it's all about having a purpose for the bigger, the bigger story, right? So clearly you're running the sweetest gift. Obviously it's, it's doing good for you, but it's doing good for other people. So I'd love it if you told me what is the big goal here? I know you said dessert restaurant, but can you tell me like, is it open to the public? Is it in the middle of Sydney? Like, like what is the big vision? Yeah. So the big vision is to have a dessert restaurant that's open in Sydney, hopefully in the area that we live in, which is the Southern Sutherland Shire. So down towards Cronulla for those that are familiar with Sydney, there's a market gap there. So we're trying to tap into that. There's no dessert restaurant. There's nothing like us. There's actually very few dessert restaurants in general in Sydney. It's more of a it's more of a Melbourne thing, luckily, guys. I know, right? <laughs> but there's very few in Sydney. And, you know, that passion for baking and that that the psychological benefits of baking for other people, there's there's huge, huge benefits in that. And, you know, there's a number of psychological things that like benefits that I want to sort of tap into from a, a chronically ill point of view, I mean, social isolation is a huge thing. It's, you know, the the days when you're by yourself and you've got no one to talk to and no one to visit you or no reason to leave the house can quickly become two days in a row and can quickly become a week and, and longer and then you realise that it's been three weeks and you're still in your PJs. So I'm trying to break some of that sort of, not mentality, because it's not a mentality, but... But that cycle, hopefully, I mean, I've caught myself doing it from time to time and I sometimes have to force myself to leave the house because otherwise I don't. And I'm just trying to give people a reason to get out and do stuff. So this dessert restaurant will 100% be open to the public. We'll be doing custom cake orders and all custom things that we still do now, but we'll be having dessert and it will be late night sort of venue that you go after you've been out for dinner somewhere nice and or just somewhere to go for dessert and coffee late at night. So, yeah, and then bigger plans later beyond that. But we've got to get through the smaller hurdles first. So there's a question for you. I hear you about the getting out of the house. I think it's a major problem. I think it's a major problem for most home-based businesses, whether they have health issues or not. And I think loneliness is perhaps, you know, the worst thing we deal with as an industry because we are often sitting at home by ourselves nobody to talk to you know and you desperately want adult contact but you're right that it's kind of you know you start out with this like yeah yeah, I can make my own hours yeah yeah, I can work in my pajamas yeah yeah, I can whatever these are all like very positive things but then very quickly they become not positive things yeah the the perception versus the reality is a massive thing yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. So I understand the concept of having a restaurant is somewhere like people can go. So yeah. why, why did you choose a, a dessert restaurant as opposed to just like a bakery or just a, you know, a custom cake business or like why that particular model of, of business? Because a dessert restaurant, well, desserts because I'm a pastry chef and I kind of wanted to tap into that as well as the whole psychological thing behind baking for people and, and stuff like that. Desserts bring people together. And I loved the thought of people coming to the restaurant for dessert. It's also the last thing generally people have before they leave your table. So it's a memory that they have. And I really wanted to tap into that side of things from the non-unwell point of view. So our customers, I want them to have that amazing memory for a number of reasons. So the whole, they're doing social good 
by, by attending our restaurant as well as they're having dessert and they're having an awesome memory whilst, you know, being at, at the restaurant. And then I guess a restaurant allowed me the flexibility because not everyone I know loves baking. Not everyone I know is good at baking or decorating or, or any of those sorts of things. So desserts bring a few of those different elements together, but it also allowed me to tap into other people's existing skill sets. So I've got friends who have come from retail backgrounds or administration backgrounds. And so the running of a restaurant isn't just, you know, a chef and a waitress. It's, you know, people doing your admin and your marketing and, and all of those other facets. And, you know, later on in the piece, logistics and someone just driving literally your cake orders around and, and delivering and things like that. So I wanted to allow people the flexibility and my recipients and, and chronically ill people to kind of have a job that suits their needs. So if they can't, I've got a friend who has a, a form of arthritis. She can't stand up for, for more than four hours at a time. So having a job where she's working admin and then has the flexibility to come and, you know, stand around and well not stand around, but, you know, take orders or, or something like that works for her. And that's perfect. And I love the idea of that because, you know, we do need sort of the flexibility of doing all of those sorts of things as well as the flexibility of days and hours. So I really wanted to sort of make sure that as many people as I could help, I would. Yeah, and you also, you build a community not only of the employees, but you build the community of the people who come in and patronize Absolutely. the, you know, or who come in, are patrons of the restaurant or whatever. You yeah. create a local community yeah. and you create the community of employees, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, is your partner involved in that? Like, does, you know, does he intend to be, is this like your thing that he kind of helps with or is he going to like, I don't know what he does for a living, but is he like, does he want to be part of this? Is this, is this a shared goal and vision or is this, you're doing it and he just happens to be great at piping? My husband, we spent, we've been together, we've been married nine years this year. Um, We've been together for 11. Um, He spent the first maybe six years of our relationship looking after me. And full-time, or not full-time carer, but full-time carer, I guess, working as well full-time. So it was a big, tough job, big, big role to take on for someone you'd barely known at the time. And we took the whole sickness and in health vow very, very seriously and probably above and beyond what most people ever do. He's a content producer. So our beautiful website was designed entirely by him. So he's definitely well and truly involved and he loves it. He does. He is not only good with a piping bag and a, a bit of fondant, but great on other sides as well. And also, I guess having a carer as part of this little mesh of people is is so invaluable because, you know, he can sort of see it from the other side as well. And let's face it, sometimes I need the reins put on me just a fraction to sort of say, hey, Patricia, that's that's like just just settle down for one minute. <laughs> let the plaster set before you go running off into the distance of the next big adventure because you know it's yeah that's what I'm like I'm, I'm a million miles an hour and sometimes he needs to to rein that in so that's that's been a good yin and yang balance yeah so I have to tell you from a, a personal point of view that I actually what you just said there about having somebody who is a carer be involved as well is something that I recently learned or uh, continue to learn. I didn't just learn it once, continue to learn firsthand. As part of my work with Eon, I had a colleague who was a double amputee and I spent a bit of time and sometimes she uses prosthetics and sometimes she's in a wheelchair. It's kind of like mood dependent. Yep. And 
I would just, you know, meet her for, we'd meet somewhere for a meeting or we'd meet somewhere for a coffee and just spending time with her and realizing how much the world is not built for anybody who is not able-bodied was a fascinating experience. And she taught me so much about just being aware just noticing that the world is not built for people. And then similarly, I went on a road trip with this friend of mine who had the kidney transplant and he has some vision difficulties as well. And I would, I mean, I feel awful for saying this now, but we'd, we'd be on like a hiking trail and I would just like start, you know, running off into the distance and I would look back and like, I wonder like, why isn't he following me? And of course he's not following me because where I can easily see a rock jutting out or a, you know, a, I don't know, bit of wood or something you know i can easily see a rocky outcrop and know to like have safe footing or whatever around that he can't see that as easily and i am embarrassed to say that i was like sort of annoyed i was like we're meant to be on this trip together why isn't he walking with me and it really it took me a while to go oh he isn't walking with me and certainly not as quickly because a there's fear there about what he might you know, fall over or whatever. And also, of course, he needs to walk slower and more carefully to make sure that he doesn't end up in any, you know, scrapes or off the side of a cliff or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's not until you've lived the life in someone else's shoes or seen it firsthand for yourself that you really ever understand it. And I totally appreciate that. I mean, you know, I used to walk around, I used to have a white cane for my vision and it used to drive both. So I've got a younger brother who you know, quite frequently when my husband was at work, he would take me out instead. And that was amazing. But it would drive, I think, both my brother and my husband, whenever they were out with me, crazy that people just never saw the white cane. They would only see me using the white cane and kind of not understand what that meant as a whole. Oh, either get people staring at us or people just like crossing straight in front of me and not, you know, ever understanding why and yeah. It's only because I've spent time with people, like actual one-on-one time with people who have these issues that I'm like, like, it's, it's like the dawning. You suddenly go, oh my God, I totally get it now. And you know, my friend Alexis who suffers with her fibromyalgia and her lupus and everything, you know, tiredness is a really big thing for her. And you know, she'll go out on a, on a social to dinner with somebody or whatever, and she'll have to leave earlier. She'll have to whatever. And I used to get like offended. Like I hardly see you. I live in Australia. You live in America. I hardly see you. And you don't want to spend time with me. And I, she it took her being very patient and saying, it's not that I don't love you. It's that I simply cannot. Yeah. And if I spend this extra three hours with you, I will be in bed for the next yeah. four days. And she really taught me and, and, and spending time with all those three people really taught me that you often have to make unconscious bargains. Oh yeah. If if I want to do this, that means I can't do that. Or if I want to go here, that means I'm going to have to ask for help there or whatever. And I've, I've, I truly think that what they have taught me is such a gift because I have become a better human now. I recognize these things. I understand. I can't say I get it. I haven't lived that life. I can't say I get it in that respect, but I have so much more understanding and it just all makes so much more sense now. And, you know, now I'll chat to Alexis on the phone. And if she says to me after 20 minutes, look, Michelle, I'd love to keep chatting, but I'm just too tired. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You call me when you're ready. Yeah. Whereas a couple of years ago, I'd have been like, are you serious right now? I made time for you. And, you, you, and I realize how selfish we are. We just don't understand what other people are going through. 
for us as well. That's, I guess, part of what the sweetest gift is all about as well as bringing awareness and a bit of light to, to the situation that we're in. I mean, chronic illness is a really difficult one. The statistics are something like one in two Australians will have a chronic illness at some point in their lifetime. So that's, you know, I'm the one out of the two of us, essentially. Right. Um, one out of my husband and I. But, you know, it's the person sitting next to you could be that person. And it's trying to bring some light to the fact that they're not always necessarily well, but when they are, they're firing on the cylinders and you should embrace that while while we can. And and that's amazing that what what these people are capable of is just incredible. So trying to to showcase that a little bit and make make bring a bit more awareness around the the downside of it to some point as well. You know, not we can't work all the time and you know, we do get sick and it happens at more frequently sometimes than we would like or more unexpectedly certainly than we would like. So, I think yeah, bring, yeah make, giving a more normality to it. Well, I think we need to recognise that just because somebody is 100% ill, that does not mean they're 100% incapable. Yeah, exactly. There's a that's, big difference. That's the thing. Like you can have a chronic illness that affects your whole life, but that doesn't make you any less intelligent. That doesn't mean you can't work. That doesn't mean you can't contribute to society. That doesn't yeah. mean you, you know, you know, like it's such a, I think we just see a chronic illness or a disability or something. We see it as like a hundred percent shutting down of your whole life. And that's not really the case. You can keep a job you know, provided there's some flexibility. And the truth is really, Patricia, we all need flexibility in our jobs Absolutely. for reasons other than medical things. Maybe yeah. we're a parent and we need to leave early to pick up our kids. Maybe we are a carer for someone who is unwell or for a, a parent or something and we need time to look after them. Maybe we have some mental illness, depression, anxiety. Maybe we need time off for that. Like the truth is everyone would benefit from a flexible work environment, no matter what their extenuating circumstances are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's affording these people that, that exactly that. I was telling you earlier that through my work with Eon, I've actually learned, I don't know the exact statistic to be honest, but I've learned that people who are hired in jobs with disabilities tend to be way more loyal to the job, tend to take nearly zero, if very few sick days and tend to work way, way harder, but also sadly for less money yeah, over time. Really me. Yeah. yeah. I went to, 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 say though yeah you know what one of the things i learned i went to an eon event with somebody who was blind recently and she made and she is she is working and and whatever she made a very interesting point which is that we don't realize the personal cost of being disabled and by the way i say disabled i don't necessarily mean physically it could be yeah. mentally as well yeah. i just mean you have a limitation of some yeah. kind or you need to make an adjustment of some kind and she was talking about how obviously she can't drive right because she's blind so she has costs like taxis and yeah. Ubers and you know she's got costs associated like her life is more expensive yeah if you ignore the medical part right well I'm not talking medical oh, yeah. bills I'm just absolutely. talking just existing her yeah. life is more expensive than most people yeah absolutely just some of the day-to-day -day things that most people take for granted cost a lot of people a lot more than than the average or what what I would deem as normal. I mean, you know, there's a lot of the time it, I struggle to get around on public transport. I try to, I shouldn't because I'm immunosuppressed, but I try because I like that feeling of normality. And sometimes it's, it's that those things that we crave the most is that feeling of normality. But I think the biggest thing for, for the group that I'm trying to help is that we don't have access to any sort of government welfare or any sort of government support or anything like that. So, 
you sort of you're left with this this illness or condition where you're kind of on your own and without you know any any understanding employers and there are understanding employers in in the country and that's amazing and props to them for doing what they do and, and understanding and, and delivering on on those sorts of things but yeah, the cost is just phenomenal. Well, and so this is the terrible thing, right? The cost yeah. is higher, but yeah. the the ability to earn a living to yeah. set that cost is lower. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. And yeah, statistically, I'm sure that the people with disabilities, in any way, shape, or form, are paid substantially lower than a able-bodied counterpart. And you know, let's forget the gender inequality when you've got this sort of inequality as well. It's Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? I, I have to say, I so applaud what you're doing on about a, a thousand million levels, regardless of the <laughs> fact that it's baking. And I just obviously have an affinity for that. Yeah, I, I, regardless, <laughs> I just think it's such a wonderful opportunity. You're right to do kind of two things. One, not only address that gap of em- employment for people who have these issues, but also just make people so much more aware that people who have these issues are still intelligent, capable to human beings who can contribute yeah. to the world at large and in fact often make a better contribution just yeah. given the opportunity the opportunity is the big part i think we're just missing the opportunity piece of the puzzle yeah absolutely and i think you know as well some people i think there's a bit of a perception that people with chronic illnesses are like i don't know it's like hunchbacks you know nomadic hunchbacks that sort of don't get out in the real world and we don't but there's that, that taboo behind it. So bringing it out and saying, hey, here we are, we look as normal as you do. Most people, when they see me, they would never know the stuff that's going on on the inside. They, most people never know that I'm blind or anything like that. And it's, yeah, <laughs> trying to bring some normality to that circumstance is, is really a big thing for me as well. So just a total throwaway question, because I feel like I have to ask, are you sick of macarons now? <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I just delivered a whole bunch of Easter-shaped ones to friends and, and places today. So I've had fun being out for the morning. <laughs> and it was my way of getting out for the day. So yeah, it was forced, but I loved it. So, and I love nothing more than the smile on people's faces when they take the treats that I've made. So if, other, if I can help other people get that feeling, then that's amazing. Yeah. So what, tell me, Patricia, I know that you are now busy baking and making this all happen. What is the time? Like, when am I going to go and get to sit down and eat at this restaurant? Because I feel like now you're really making me want to do this. So put it out there now. I sort of feel like I can't back down and not do this, which is good. I love this is an international podcast, right? So there's going to be people all over the world being like, (laughs) I checked out Patricia on Netflix uh, and now I need to eat at that restaurant. So what do you, I mean, I know that for, obviously it's difficult, right? To have a timeline for this, but in your head, have you got sort of a a, a timeline that you're working towards or what is the plan from here on in? I actually spoke with a friend, a good friend of mine today about exactly this. And I decided today that it's going to be September this year. Uh, 2018. Yeah. 100%. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> can I, can I book a seat for your opening okay. night? Yeah, absolutely. You're invited to the party. All right. I'm coming. I'm yep. coming. I'm coming. And I'm like bringing everybody I know. I'm like, yeah. right. Road trip to Sydney. We're right. all going to eat these amazing desserts. We'll hire a bus. Priscilla, queen of the desert style. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. We need to do this. Yes.
So September this year, right? I'm holding you to this now. September this year, we want to open this restaurant. And so in, so I'm envisaging, it's actually not really a restaurant. It's kind of a, there's restaurant and there's retail and there's custom yeah. cake. It's like really, it's a whole, I mean, we're talking a, a whole business here. Not an empire. Thing. An empire. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And so... And so this is, so this is like, we're just all going to make this happen. If you are listening to this podcast and you want to support Patricia, I will absolutely put her website and all her details on, on both the podcast itself in the show notes. And I will make sure that everybody knows about it and everybody hears about it because you know what, why not? Let's, let's all, let's all help you get there. I think we can totally make this happen. Also, I like, if you're one of the people that I'm trying to help, so if you've got a chronic illness or you're transplanted, get in touch get in touch. Like, like, tell me a story. I, I love hearing all the feedback that I've gotten since I started this, since I sort of put it out there that I was going to do this. I've gotten some amazing feedback. So yeah, get in touch. <laughs> I'd love to. Have you, have you partnered with any of the, just out of curiosity, have you partnered with any of the charities like Kidney Health Australia or any of those guys? Not as yet. We've just done a big event with the Hurt of Hope, which was an event, uh, a ch- another charity that ran, they did a big event a couple of Saturdays ago in Bondi where they brought cattle to the beach um, to highlight organ and tissue transplantation in rural areas. So that was cool. Wow. Um, looking to do a few more of those sorts of things. So local carers groups and things like that, getting a, a lot more local community awareness, but definitely hoping to do some more national stuff soon too. I wanted to make a quick point, Patricia, about organ donation. So I'm an organ donor and I have been since I was allowed to make that decision, which in the United States is when you get a driver's license. So when you're 16. Yeah. And I wanted to make an interesting point. I recently learned, I'm not sure entirely about the rules uh, in Australia, but I, and hopefully you can clarify this for me. I recently learned that even if you declare yourself an organ donor and it's on your driver's license and yada, yada, your family can actually override your choices about that. that. In Australia, that's correct. We in Australia also no longer have the licensing system. So you actually need to go to donatelife.gov.au to register your wishes and your family always do get the final say. So it's really, really important to discuss organ donation, even though it's a bit of an uncomfortable topic at times. And it's a little bit like you don't really want to talk about your death or someone else's. It's super, super important. So if you get the opportunity to talk about it at least. And, you know, I totally respect that not everyone is comfortable with that. Um, Not everyone's comfortable with organ donation and I'm totally fine with that. Um, But the last thing you would want is to find yourself in a intensive care unit, having to make that decision about somebody else and wishing, you know, last Christmas when I saw them or last week when I saw them, I wish I'd spoken to them about this sort of stuff. So yeah, you could, you could be saving someone. You could say, I think it's the statistics about 10 lives, up to 10 lives you can be saving by being an organ donor. So So that's huge. I've had this conversation with my partner and my, my children who are kids, you know, uh, for years I've had this conversation and I've always said to them, just so everyone around, in fact, I've called my best friends and told them so that everyone is 100% clear, give away all my usable parts. Yeah. Like I've made it really, really clear, but it is hard to say that because not everyone is comfortable with saying that. I'm I'm still an organ donor. So have you got anything left, Patricia? (laughs) Hey, if I do, they can have it. But I've heard, I've heard of stories of, so to speak, second, so as a recipient of a kidney and a transplant, if mine is still usable, I've heard stories where a recipient has then donated and that is the most amazing sort of story I think I could ever hear about organ donation. But I still, you, you can donate tissue. So my skin, tendons, bones, all of those sorts of things, 
Amazing. There's a, I, for ages, I had a bumper sticker actually, which said, don't take your organs to heaven because heaven knows we need them here. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, for sure. It needs to, needs to become a bit more of a community norm in Australia, particularly. So, um, yeah. Well, death is the thing that happens to all of us. So why is it such a scary topic? I wonder. Absolutely. I just, yeah. Oh, I could go on for hours about that. <laughs> so Patricia, you are now essentially well. I know yes. you've got the feet problems, but you're essentially well. You yeah. are busy baking like a mad thing. Macarons yeah. from the home-based kitchen. Mm-hmm. Opening this restaurant come September, which is exciting. Yeah. I just think you are amazing. I mean, not just for what you've survived, but the fact that you are not only thriving, but choosing to take the energy you've got and, and put it into something which clearly is not just about helping you, but help, helping a bigger, wider community. And you are so right that this is an obstacle. Lots of people, I think, suffer within silence. And I just so much honor, you know, the gift you got through that, you know, kidney and pancreas, but also the gift you are now giving to others living in the same situation. And I just think you're amazing. And I hope that everyone listening to this podcast gets behind the sweetest gift in whatever way you can. If that's sharing a story, if that's contributing money, if that's coming with me as my plus 20 to the uh, September (laughs) events. Big silver bust with the big high heel stiletto on top. (laughs) I will so, you know what? Don't put it past me. I will so, I will so be there. Although we were talking about Manolos in the first little bit, weren't we? Yeah. uh, To be fair, I prefer to fly but i feel like i would you know like you know we can get we, we can make it happen we can like charter a whole plane and get everybody to come <laughs> well this is true absolutely you are living proof that nothing is impossible so how hard can it be to get a plane to sydney full of a bunch of people who like to eat dessert oh yeah absolutely, absolutely. this is not difficult in the, yeah. in the in the list of stuff you have survived and managed to get done i feel like this the easiest thing is getting a bunch of people over there to eat some dessert together fantastic Amazing. Keep up the amazing, amazing work. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today and proving so many of the things I talk about, which is that the money can be used for good and not evil. And so therefore we shouldn't feel bad about charging for stuff because you never know where that money's going to go. And also just for showing being a, being a real life example of how sometimes life throws a bunch of unpleasant things at us. And it's not about the fact that it threw it at us. It's about how we cope and pipe our way around it. Yeah. Exactly. When life throws you lemons, make lemon tart. Yeah. Oh, I love lemon tarts. <laughs> so yes, please. Could I have a dozen? Thanks. <laughs> That's our best-selling product. <laughs> oh, are you serious? Yeah, I a certain one. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. My grandmother's recipe. Every every event we ever go to, that's the one thing we can't keep up with. So I may be the macaron queen, <laughs> lemon tart legend. So. Right. I like this title. I like this I title. I will save one for you for when you come up. One. Come to the rope bowl. Yeah. What one? I yeah, get one. one. One as big as my arms can reach. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Lemon tart right. that ain't Melbourne. You save that really nicely. I'm like, lemon tarts are really small. What do you mean I just get one? I want like a dozen, but okay. <laughs> A giant lemon tart. Right. Thank you so much, Patricia, for being a guest on the Business of Baking podcast today. You are an absolute legend and not just of the lemon tarts. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.